that abuse is a necessary evil for greatness because our culture, like you say, we don't like to say it explicitly, but we do believe on a very deep level in the military, in the arts, in sports, in schools. We believe that abusing someone, breaking them down, breaking them apart, manifesting our power, um, making them feel less than is a motivating, passionate, you know, uh, it's, it's going to push them to be their greatest selves. And from a scientific point of view, that's completely false. Welcome, I'm your host Stefano, and this is uh, When Leaders Talk, a podcast about leadership and most importantly, about leaders. We've been talking about toxic leaders and the effect of, to of toxic leadership in uh, previous episodes. In this one, we keep the conversation going, but this time we may basically journey inside the brain of a narcissistic leader. The goal of this episode is to understand how they think, why they do the things they do, and also why they become narcissistic on the first instance. And the guest is actually a person that knows a lot about it, is Jennifer Fraser. She is the author of a great book that I strongly recommend. It's called The Bullet Brain. The book tells the story of her sons, of herself, and other people that have been victims of abusive, in this case, especially teachers. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not just teachers, it's also leaders in a more general uh, way. This conversation that we have with Jennifer is a way to really understand better the people that we might or not, hopefully, encounter in our lives to adapt to understand to less to be less scared by these these kind of leaders that doesn't mean accepting them but is is um, a healthy way to interact with them so i am sure that there are a lot of information i will appreciate in this episode and uh, please subscribe to this podcast in any platform in every platform you're listening to now because it's a way for us to keep growing and I have great people in this, as a guest, uh, and talk about leadership in this podcast. Also, you can follow me on social media. And you can find the reference in the, in the description of this episode. Or you can go on www.masterurc.com. That's the website where I talk. I keep talking about leadership in the blog. And I also talk about coaching leadership coaching and executive coaching. So with no further ado, Jennifer Fraser. Jennifer, what is your definition of leadership? I believe that leaders who are highly effective and truly dedicated to their role find ways to empower their employees, their managers, their other individuals that they work with to also become leaders. And they might become a leader in a small area. They might become a leader in terms of ultimately taking on a huge leadership position. 
Regardless, the leader isn't so informed with his or her power that it becomes this kind of narcissistic, um, ego-fulfilling, domineering, power-over-others role. It becomes a leadership role where they're constantly looking to access and capitalize and optimize the potential leadership in all the others that they work with. Right. So there is, I like what you said about the empowering, basically leaders create leaders, you know, and this is a concept uh, that has been repeated. I've read a book uh, by someone seen it, actually, he really advocates for this kind of leadership. And I totally agree with it. It's not about yourself, as you say, it's not about your ego. And, and we know very well that some leaders have a very strong narcissistic um, component, if you want, in them. And, so, um, and this is something that I think you have described. Jennifer has written this great book, uh, The Bully Brain, that I've read. It's it's an amazing book. I highly recommend reading it. And uh, I would like to go in, in what you've wrote, uh, Jennifer, because uh, there are a lot of lessons for, for everyone who is listening to this podcast. So let me ask you, uh, first of all, if you want to share your story, because it's, actually it's not just about you, but it's also about your sons and how, you know, where or another, everything is connected in the book. You know, in a way is amazing, in other ways terrifying. Um, Stefano, can I just before I talk about my story and my kids and what happened and why I was inspired to write the bullied brain, I just something that you said triggered something in my mind, and I just want to circle back to this idea of leadership and the idea of narcissism. Because as we know, as you just said. Oftentimes, or sometimes, narcissists will take the leadership position. They, they are well um, trained and well positioned in their own minds to be somebody who has power over other people. And what they do um, is try and make the other people or the organization reflect them. So the, reflect their their power, reflect that they are a fearsome individual, reflect that they, when they speak, the command must be followed, reflect that when they say jump, all of these people say how high, oh great one. And we see this in international politics right now in a very um, disturbing way. So the narcissistic leader is very disinterested in empowering others because they see it as a threat. Anyone who has power, anyone who has talent, anyone who earns respect constantly is eroding all of this adoration that must be flowing into the narcissistic leader. So when I talk about leadership empowering, I'm trying to specifically say we can't afford anymore as a society, as internationally connected global citizens to fuel the narcissistic leader who wants everyone to reflect them. It's dangerous. It's outright dangerous. And it's, it could lead to the, I mean, it leads to such shocking suffering in our world on, on such a large scale that it has to be questioned. It has to be changed. We have lots of science, lots of knowledge, lots of ways of doing things differently. And I look really forward to seeing the kinds of leaders 
who, who are in charge of whole populaces and whole countries and nations and impact other nations. I want to see them looking out into the world and building a team of amazing individuals with each with their distinct gifts and powers and talents and strengths and empowering them, giving them the education, the platform, the resources they need to ensure that we care for the largest group of people, not just this specialized few who, who are, you know, worshiping at the feet of the, of the great leader. That model is not serving humanity anymore and we need to change. And as you know, after having read the book, I believe brain science is the way that we can start moving forward in in better ways. So I just throw that out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and actually, I have appreciated every single word you wrote. Not because actually it's all based on true fact. That's very sad, but it's it raises awareness. And what I was reading, I could relate to events in my life. Surely a different magnitude to what you went through, uh, but still, you know, and. Earlier you were talking about the narcissistic leader who is kind of a vampire. He sucks your brainness. He sucks your energy. He or she, of course. Um, and in my mind, having been in the Navy for a long time, and the Navy, the Italian Navy has been male only uh, until a few years ago. So it's, it's all the boss that I had were, uh, were men. That doesn't take anything. You know, it's, it's not a gender issue actually quite spread and there is nothing left for you and that's where i felt empty completely empty uh, there was an episode in, in my life that really kept me uh as i said empty you know I, I couldn't find energy motivation there was no spark in me anymore i was literally just dragging myself one day and then another day just to um, reach the end of this period because I knew, you know, the good thing is, about, I guess, in, in the military is that you know that you're either going to change job at some point or your boss is going to go. But still, it's not life. It's not the way you feel you want to live your life. And you know that sometimes you don't even have um, the right structure in the organization to protect you from these kind of people. Actually, some organizations, they um, kind of foster this kind of mentality. And that's the worst thing. Um, so what, the, what makes a leader narcissistic? How would you, well, let's start with a definition, right? Let's start with a, the definition that just to set a common ground for for the the, uh, the audience so as as stefano alluded to and mentioned i was involved uh 10 years ago a little over 10 years ago in a bullying situation that was happening in an organization and it happened to be a school but the school is the same thing as the Navy, is the same thing as a corporate entity or a not-for-profit. They're all organizational structures with leaders and with sub-leaders and with employees and, and so on. So I, I started looking at the brain science and it occurred to me as I was researching it that it actually is the missing piece. 
And so when we talk about narcissists, we don't necessarily talk about what's going on in their brains or how they became the way they did. But when you take a look at the brain science, you find that there's extensive peer-reviewed replicated research, we're talking 20 years of research that looks into what do you see when you look at a narcissist brain on a brain scan? You know, we have non-invasive technology now. We have MRI, we have fMRI, we have SPECT, we have EEG. We can look at brains and see what's going on in really, really illuminating, powerful ways. And so with the narcissist, there can be a genetic factor, of course, um, but oftentimes these individuals come from, as, as a, an excellent psychologist, who's, his name is Dr. Joseph Burgo, who studies um, narcissism and he studies bullying. He says that they come from unhappy homes. And so, I mean, that's kind of a, a broad term. Chances are very good these individuals come from abuse of one form or another. So the narcissist is a very incomplete individual. Their sense of selfhood depends on others. They don't, so if you think of a child starting to become a narcissist who comes from an abusive home, and that can be verbal abuse, constant put downs, berating, yelling, uh, told they're not worth anything, told they're lazy, told whatever, like the kinds of things that kids have to endure. Could be physical abuse. It could be emotional neglect where the parent is absent or the caretaker is absent due to their own traumas. It could be mental health. It could be substance abuse. It could be incarceration. You know, these things are all studied extensively. We, we know a lot about them and we know that they're incredibly harmful to children. And, you know, my whole approach is, okay, well, Blame and shame doesn't get us anywhere. It just gets us going in a circle, in the bullying circle. But what if we could say this isn't so much a, a pointing the finger and a moral issue? Like, can we walk away from morality and ethics as a, as a kind of outdated model? Not that it doesn't apply. I mean, if you hurt someone, it's an ethical issue. I get that. But it also helps us move forward if we understand that it's a medical issue. So a narcissist... You can't see there's anything wrong with them. But if you could look into their brain with non-invasive technology, you could see that they are really struggling in the empathy parts of their brain. And just to remind everybody, empathy is when you, there's two kinds of empathy. So there's cognitive empathy, when you're really good at understanding the thoughts and the feelings and the intentions of another human being. You can look at them and you, you can read and you're very good at it. Um, that's what a narcissist is like. They are able to read their people like it's incredible. It's a gift for them. They have very high intelligence oftentimes. They have, this is why they go into leadership roles. They are cognitively very bright. They are language-wise very gifted. The only problem is this is the breakdown in the brain or the dysfunction they are missing affective empathy. Affective empathy is the part that when you see a man lowering his eyes in shame, it hurts your heart. It hurts your brain. You see a kid crying because he misses his parents who are always absent because they're so stressed out at work. It hurts you. You feel that pain. You literally feel it. That's affective empathy, and the narcissist doesn't have it. If you looked in their brain and you showed them images of these things, the humiliated man, the elderly lady who gets hit by a car, the child who's crying, 
nothing lights up in the effective empathy circuits in their brain, it's extinguished. And it's extinguished because of usually life circumstances. They've learned that that's not a part of the brain that's gonna allow them to survive. They've learned that if they wanna be a survivor, they wanna be a leader, they need, they're gonna get through their childhood and everything else, they need to just let that go because it, it makes them vulnerable and that makes them at risk and they can't survive. So if you're a kid that grows up in a super healthy home where your parents aren't stressed out and they aren't suffering themselves in some way, shape or other, and they can give you a great education and they can, they can love you and never neglect you and just be there and sky's the limit and, and just notice everything wonderful about you and empower you to fulfill your potential. If you're that lucky person, chances are really good you're not gonna be a narcissist. You're gonna be a leader who goes, oh, how can I pass on this wonderful experience that I've had? How can I see all my people, they're like my children, my family, how can I see them fulfill their potential? So you can see, you, you come by it by good fortune. Um, but I, Stefano, I just wanna add one tiny piece of that long-winded answer, which is that no matter how we've been raised, no matter how much we suffered as kids, no matter what traumas we've been through, and what many of us have been through traumas, we can all change our brains. We all have neuroplasticity. We all have the capacity to go, I don't like how I'm acting. I don't like the way I lose my temper. I don't like the way I yell at my kids. I don't like any of these things. I've certainly been in that place before. And I've said to myself, okay, well, I'm gonna change. And if you could look at my brain, every time I practice quietness, gentleness, thoughtfulness, curiosity, asking my kids why they're acting, what they're, why they're doing what they do and not being angry, I'm changing the neural networks in my brain. And then they start to become the go-to. They become the default. I choose them all the time because they bring me and my family much more happiness and calmness. And we can all do that. All leaders can change their brains. Absolutely. And you know, there, are, there is another thing that is, uh, you are, in a way saying, and, and actually it's very clear on the book, that, that uh, empathy is in need. Why we learn to be abusive, we learn to be narcissistic. But by birth, we are empathetic and there's something we show, of course, primarily with our, our mother, our parents and our family, and then and so, forth, so on and so forth. But if life throws things at you, of course you lose this the skill, not forever, as you mentioned, neuroplasticity uh, is something that tells us that we can really rewire our brain at every age, any age, any time, doesn't matter. Um, and this, there is a, but yet, you know, you lose this capability because as you mentioned, you, you have learned from someone that probably was abusive or narcissistic or um, in a way showed you so the, the wrong way to achieve results. And as we mentioned earlier, some environments, some organization, they actually enforce this kind of culture. They not probably explicitly, but they do reward, uh, especially people that are very result oriented. And even if they are ruthless in, in, the, in these um, achieving their goal, they got a reward, they got a promotion, they reach the top of the ladder and, and it's, it's always amazing to see how successful depending on how you want to define success they can be and yet there is burned ground around them the moment they leave is a disaster mm -hmm. 
I am, as you know, from reading the book, one of my chapters is I work really hard to debunk the myth. And it is a myth that abuse is a necessary evil for greatness because our culture, like you say, we don't like to say it explicitly, but we do believe on a very deep level in the military, in the arts, in sports, in schools. We believe that abusing someone, breaking them down, breaking them apart, manifesting our power, um, making them feel less than is a motivating, passionate, you know, uh, it's, it's going to push them to be their greatest selves. And from a scientific point of view, that's completely false. It's absolutely untrue. If you want people to attain greatness, then they're not going to be, just as you described yourself, they're not going to be walking around without purpose, no energy, no happiness, no desire to achieve, no motivation. They're just putting themselves through their days and hoping for it to end. Counting the times and the, the days until they can escape. That is not a motivated purposeful, high-achieving individuals. Sorry, you described it yourself. It's a completely, an, it's a shell of a human being. And you can do it to athletes, you can do it to students, you can do it to your partner that you're married to, you can do it to your employees, whatever you want. But we really need as a society to debunk that myth. And the best, best way to debunk it is with brain science. Well, yeah, absolutely. Also because you're you're right you know sometimes you think that yelling at people and swearing at them and insulting them is the way to push them you know like oh i do this uh to have the best from them and in the book you mentioned this movie whiplash i i love music so i really i watched the, the movie uh and uh i love the fact that you mentioned in your because Whiplash, for if you haven't seen it, is a movie that actually tells the story of um, uh, a small orchestra director. He's uh, in a, in a um, is it, if I'm not wrong, he's a university, and uh, his way of directing the the, the 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 kids that are playing instrument is to yell at them, and in a, in a very aggressive. It, it's why it's wild. Some, at some point, it's why I feel I felt bad for the kids. I felt bad for the kids. And actually, I would have I didn't know is the director of the movie. He has been a victim of this kind of abuse. He's at the end of the day, he's almost telling his story. I mean, of course, mm -hmm. not the end. The end is really not the same. It's a, it's, a, it's a different ending. And yet, the end of the movie is very open, right? It, it depends what you what you want to take out from the movie, and I like the way you specify well, your your interpretation. Actually, is the director, the movie director interpretation is is, uh, uh, is, is uh, abusive behaviors are never good. They just transform people not in a good way. And uh, I I want to I want to take this and, and that was reflecting on. And the problem is when narcissism combines with other characteristics, because we know that some some leaders are um, psychopath also. Well, below, of course, a, a pathological level. Otherwise, hopefully, someone will stop them before, or even Machiavellist. Machiavelli, yeah, I hope they say it right. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, you know, there is a fourth trait, there is sadism. So th- this combination of four elements creates, well, we think they're monsters, but at the end of the day, we can see them. We saw them in the history of humanity. And uh, probably people like, of course, Hitler, Mussolini in Italy, even Stalin or Mao Zedong, these great leaders that someone is still considering the best leaders they can have. They have created disasters. They have killed literally millions of people, ruthlessly. And, uh, and yeah, the people, you know, they, they, for them, they are their idol or these kind of things, and they still follow their, their philosophy and so on and so forth. Um, I, I want to ask you, so why, what makes those leaders um, a reference? What, the, what is that we need to do to debunk the myth, to keep debunking, debunking the myth, other than, you know, writing and, and reading the book that you wrote? Um, yeah, it's, so one of the things that I found fascinating when I was doing the research for the book was that, um, going back to what you said before, we are born with empathy. Our brains, they know from birth are wired for empathy. It's one of our greatest strengths as human beings, because human beings live through connection and they live through community. We don't have fangs. We don't have fur. We don't have claws. We are not massively strong. We're actually kind of in the great scheme of things in the world, we're pretty, pretty pathetic, pretty puny. So, you know, we have to use our, our community, our connection, our staying together, our creating of tribes. That's how we survive. We've, we've done, well, it's debatable how well we've done, but regardless, we've survived. <laughs> so one of the things that um, I learned in studying the research, the brain research, was that the more power a person attains, so you want to think Mussolini, you want to think Hitler, you want to think Stalin, the more power an individual attains, the less empathy they have. So they become so um, divorced, so distant from human suffering that they don't care. It just doesn't even register with them because their empathy neural networks, if we could look at their brains on a brain scan, have been eroded. They don't illuminate. So in my work, I mean, I study abuse. People say to me, how does so-and-so sleep at night? How is that possible with what they've done? The cruelty, the destruction. And I say, nobody sleeps better than those individuals because they don't have empathy. If you don't have empathy, you don't feel guilt, you don't feel remorse, you don't feel anguish, you don't feel regret, you don't feel any of that. All you feel is a desire to wake up the next morning and flex the muscle of power because that's what drives you, that's who you are. You've lost your humanity. It doesn't exist anymore. And the fact that that we still create these leadership positions in the world where a single individual has the power to press a button and and unleash nuclear power in our world is mind-boggling to me. If people were running countries based on neuroscience, they would have, you know, and this goes back to indigenous cultures had this, they would have a council. 
They would have a community of, of elders, of leaders who worked together, who made the best decisions they could for everyone else, that everyone's, everyone had a right to health and happiness and well-being, not just the elite, not just the powerful ones. And until we get back to that older, healthier model, we're going to see the horror that we continue to see in the world today. So what you say is that the community, the sense of community is what can save us. We can, we can isolate in a way those, those people or mitigate their effect on, on the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And yet, I mean, we saw that other communities have been in a way uh, captured, captivated by, by the charisma or the words or whatever. And that's how people end up doing unfathomable things no moral absolutely and there is there is there are many experiments you know you you mentioned one that have been done to show this are we so weak how what makes us actually the, the, the probably the best question what makes us so weak so uh vulnerable to this kind of strong personality yeah, it's such an excellent question. It's something that I think about a lot. So my next book um, that I'm working on is called The Gaslit Brain. And that's the question I'm asking. I'm asking, why do people believe other people who are lying? Why do we fall for manipulation over and over again? And what I found is really what the smart and this is great for anybody out there who's a narcissist or has dreams of power and glory. This is really the key lesson for you. This is how you can get people to believe you, even when you're lying, <laughs> is you get them to believe that, first of all, you care about them. So you really care about them. So let's use Hitler as our classic example. Hitler promises the people who are starving, he promises them bread, right? That's the famous thing. So really, if you can tap into the desperation of the populace, you know, the German people are punished after World War II, which was the biggest mistake of all time. You know, they, they had been manipulated by a madman and they got, I mean, sorry, after World War I, they'd been highly manipulated. They were incredibly punished by the rest of the world. They were going to pay the price for what they did wrong. And many of them were just civilians. I mean, lots of us as civilians don't have choices. We get pulled into doing things that, we really would not like to do, but we, if we're going to put food on the table, if we're going to protect our children, if we're going to survive, we end up compromising ourselves in terrible ways. And so, you know, it laid the groundwork for someone like Hitler to use propaganda to lie to the people. The other thing that you need to do when you want to take over is create um, an enemy. There's nothing better than an enemy to bond the tribe together. And it can be, you can choose any kind of enemy you want. It could be women, it could be children, it could be um, people from a different culture or country, people with a different religion, doesn't matter. Migrants who are trying to escape um, such desperate conditions in their own countries that they are looking for a chance at survival in your country, you name it. You choose whatever you want, but you need an enemy. And then you have to promise to the people that you're going to fight the enemy and destroy them. And it's going to give lots of benefits and opportunities to the desperate people who are in so much stress, who are starving and need bread. 
and I'm, I'm talking about this as a metaphorical thing. They might need bread. They might need a job. They're getting replaced by uh, technology. They're getting replaced by immigration. You name it. They, they've gotten desperate. And if you can get a desperate group of people who um, can build themselves up by by saying that they deserve things and the enemy doesn't and the enemy will be destroyed and this great leader is promising all these things, then you've got the recipe. You've got the perfect blueprint for becoming a powerful, manipulative, gaslighting leader. And we've seen it a million times. It's not like it's new. It's the same pattern over and over and over again. And we just can't seem to learn this lesson. Well, there is a, uh, I remember on Netflix, I think there is still a TV show that is, is called How to Become a Tyrant. <laughs> As it combines some of the things uh, that you just mentioned, plus, you know, the, of course, you need to have some good communication skills. Not, not, you don't need to be great, not necessary, but you need to have a good uh, communication skill, a good message to send and be in the right moment, in the right place. Mm -hmm. uh, just be Hitler, since we've been mentioning it a lot today, I guess, even if you you have the same uh, the same capabilities. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing this. And actually, it reminds me of another example that you mentioned in the in the book that is the, actually the origin of the, the uh, so-called Stockholm um, syndrome. That is the idea, it's not an idea, it actually happened for real, you know, like, Victims who has been kidnapped by bank robbers in Stockholm, they felt kind of connection with them. And that's because they were providing what I think you just mentioned. It was support, some kind of some kind of support. I mean, they were still threatening their lives and everything else. But some kind of support. So do you think we can be in a way excused if we do something wrong because we uh, because we were told to because there was someone as you say that manipulated us um well as you know i have a chapter on the milgram experiment which is it was done at yale university and it was i mean here we are talking about hiller again but it was it was a a psychologist named stanley milgram at yale university so this is the 1960s and he's trying to figure out how the Holocaust, sorry, how the Holocaust could have possibly happened. And he just can't wrap his mind around it. He's like, how do these regular citizens, you and me, how did they end up taking their neighbors and their neighbors' children and putting them on trains to their death? How did that happen? It's impossible. So he was trying to understand the psychology and he created this experiment, which has become very famous. And where it becomes really interesting is that he's this experiment has been done by psychologists up until the present day, and it gets the same results. And that tells us that we have not changed. And we are susceptible to repeating this kind of an absolute genocidal horror again in our society, our international world, if we don't get ourselves educated about this. So what Stanley Milgram learned is he created a school-like environment, which is fascinating to me because my whole issue began in a school. He creates a school-like environment where he plays the role of the student. So he's he just appears to these random people from the street that were brought in to do the experiment. He appears like he's he's a student who's part of the experiment and he has to answer questions correctly. So they see him behind 
a plexiglass wall. So these people were just brought in from um, the street, regular nice people, um, men originally in the experiment, they were just brought in and, and they were asked if they would help this research. Maybe they were paid some money. Can you help us do research? Prestigious Yale University. And so they had um, a researcher who was wearing a white lab coat who was saying to them, okay, well, this is what you have to do. So they're looking at the student who in fact was Stanley Milgram. He, they don't know he's an actor and that he's the head of the experiment. They don't know anything. They think he's a random guy. And he has to answer questions correctly or incorrectly. And if he makes a mistake, they are supposed to give him an electric shock. And they have this whole dial system and electric system that shows that when they hit, you know, the halfway point, it's very dangerous. If they go beyond the halfway point, they're torturing the individual in front of them. And they could actually get to the place where they kill him. So, you know, we don't have time to go into it in depth, but I spend a whole chapter on this in my book. Because what they found was all it took was a white lab coat for these individuals to follow the commands. So it was an experiment in obedience. It was an experiment in compliance. And you would really understand this as someone who's been in the military. Being in the Navy, you know how obedience and compliance works. It's kind of required for the safety of everyone. You have to follow commands. When it's given, you don't question it. And that everybody's safety depends on that. And that makes sense. But what we have done in society that's leading us astray is we teach this to all children. So they start, think of their brains, their brains are wide open and malleable and they get shaped by environment and they get shaped, literally, you can look at it on a brain scan. They get shaped by environment, school, and they get shaped by home and they get shaped by what they practice. We start our kids in school across the world around four or five years old and we tell them that obedience is the key. They must obey, they must comply. They must sit in their desk. They must do the worksheet. They must be polite. They must answer the teacher. They must go for lunch at 12 o'clock. We tell them that obedience is the key to everything. And we hammer that lesson into their brains from five years old until 18 years old. And we continue it if they go on to further education. This is I'm, why, I'm this, sorry. Is, I'm, this is why we grow up to be people that obey. All it takes is someone to say, I'm the teacher, I've got a white lab coat on, I'm gonna tell you to electrocute this human being you don't know to the point where you might kill him. And the people did it. That's what's shocking. There's very small percentage of people resisted and said, no, I will not do it to the authority figure. So, I mean, all of us, I mean, I'm a big believer in accountability. I do not think the brain science is there to excuse people from how they conduct themselves. We all have the capacity to get educated. We all have the capacity to self-regulate and care for other people, etc. At the same time as, especially with our young people, the brain science can help us understand why they're behaving the way they do and then teach them how to manage it. Like if we all, like if our leaders learned how to manage their stress response, we would see them be healthier, happier, and more high-performing. Well, I was smiling while we were talking because I know we teach obedience, and now we're trying to uh, when they when the kids are very young, and then now we are trying to teach them later on, and we are trying to teach them strategic thinking, you know, because we want to free them from strict obedience. So that we impose on them. That's a, that's a, a funny thing, but I, I totally relate what you're saying, and actually, it's true in the military. 
it's everything is based no I'm, probably it's, it's, it's an exaggeration but obedience has a weight a, a, a big weight and also because of course you're gonna do things that you might not agree upon and I'm, I'm not talking about unethical things but in general you're gonna do things that probably you do not agree upon um and uh and there is always a way to push back but it's is hardly enforced you know and the, the most you will see what do you will hear from your boss is they is like no i told you to do so you just you do so and not much more than this uh unfortunately but uh, yeah as i said um it's funny because now we want to free people from this obedience paradigm and uh, make them more responsible and they can use the free power so the willpower i'm sorry um, but I want to go back to, to my, my question. What, what should we do then? You know, how can we make people more, you know, stronger in a way um, without falling in a trap and at the same time keep our society together without having, you know, the rebellions and riots and this kind of thing? Well, as you know, in the book, the book is structured so that every single chapter, I outline what the neuroscientists, the doctors, the neurobiologists, all the people that study the brain, psychologists, psychiatrists, I give all the research, like tons of research. And it's not, it's not like you have to read a bunch of science, it's for everybody. I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist and I can read it and understand it. Um, and the, a great analogy for this is I'm not an oncologist, but I can understand that smoking is, is quite likely to give me really bad health results, maybe even cancer. I, gotta, I have to know that if, if I'm going to smoke. Same thing with the brain science. It's not impossible to understand. You don't have to be an expert. I have lots of research in the book, but I've put it in the back so that I've made it like readable for all of us, like relevant and practical and applicable. And with every single chapter, although we talk about how does abuse happen? What does it do to the brain? You can see the physical damage on the brain from all forms of abuse. That's yelling, berating, put downs, sex abuse, physical abuse, emotional neglect, uh, physical neglect, uh, psychological manipulation, you name it, it does physical damage to the brain, it's visible on a brain scan. So I marshal all that evidence. But with every single chapter, I answer that question. Okay, that's bad news. What can we do about it? And the neuroscientists and neurobiologists, they know just as much about how to fix the brain, repair the brain, make the brain strong, make the brain healthy, make the brain happy, and best of all, make the brain totally high-performing. They know that. And so every single chapter has steps on, okay, this is the challenge. What do we do about it? And there's so much we can do. And it's not expensive. It's hard work. But, you know, again, like the military model, the sport model, the academic model, the corporate model, we're all used to working hard. We know that to be physically fit, we have to get in shape and it's hard work takes yes. at least six months, not a lot of fun at the beginning, gets better as you do it. You know, anybody who sat on the couch for a year and then goes for a jog knows the misery of that experience. 
And that's what training your brain is like. Your brain is like a muscle. You can exercise it. You can make it stronger and you can make it more flexible. On the flip side, by doing the same practices over and over and over again, like obeying other people or yelling at other people or hurting people or whatever, you can make it weaker and you can make it more inflexible so that you believe that everything you do is right and good and true. You can believe that if you want in a very inflexible way that doesn't allow for other people's points of views or feelings or experiences. It's up to you. You are the one who shapes and sculpts your own brain. Okay, I, I'm, I agree with this. And of course, if I am, uh, let's say, not a narcissistic person, not an abusive person, I am willing to uh, be stronger. And I do all the activities that you, know, you mentioned in your book. There is meditation, mindfulness, there is a exercise, physical exercise is always great. And that's why the Romans used to say, men's son and corpore sano. It's, it's, uh, it's so true and it's so old also. But what about narcissistic person what first of all if I, if i want to be uh, faster as a runner the thing i need is will <laughs> because it's, it's not going to be easy as you say so is the narcissistic willing do you think a narcissistic would be willing to um kind of change put an effort to be less damaging towards other people. Are they able to really look at themselves to the mirror, the thing they probably, they, they love doing it and see what they really are beyond what they think they are? So, you know, it's a brilliant question. From the research I've read, every single person can change. Okay, so let's start with that. The research also is very clear that someone who has become fully embedded as a narcissist, when they look in the mirror, they don't see anybody. That's not the real mirror for them. They don't see themselves. They're in, an, they're in a state of trauma and a state of denial. So they need to create a mirror of other people who they humiliate, who they make suffer, who they destroy. And they need to create a mirror out of people that get benefits, who stand by and watch while they destroy others. And those beneficiaries, the ones who look away, the ones who look down, the ones who laugh and gloat and, and enjoy the spectacle of other people's sufferings, those people will defend the narcissist and argue that he or she is the greatest person, the greatest leader, the most advanced. They are critical to the whole system. So there's one group that gets dehumanized. There's one group that gets put up on the pedestal and they're, they're the ones that will do anything for, for the, regardless of the suffering for the narcissist. And that's the narcissist mirror. That's, that's what is their community and it hinges on their power. So it's not a normal human interaction between a mirror and a selfhood. They are, their selfhood is lacking. They are hollow. They are only fulfilled through other people. So if you imagine this on the playground with a child who's bullying, it starts, it can start very early for children. And that kid goes to school 
and he or she has no interest in playing. They're not looking for their friends. They're not curious. They don't want to play games on the playground. They don't want to run. They don't want to see nature. They don't want to go to the library and read a book. They don't want to find their teacher. They don't, they don't want any of that. That doesn't drive them. Those are the drives of the healthy human being. That's normal. That's natural. That's what human beings are designed to do. Just like the creatures, creatures of the world are designed that way. Imagine the child who's going to bully. The only thing they're looking for when they get to school is the target. They need a target because they feel hollow. They feel they are driven by the emptiness within them. From whatever's happened at home, they are empty and they need to fill themselves. It's like they need fuel or gas from the target. And they need an audience to watch them hurt the target because that's the mirror they need. Now, if that doesn't sound like the most unhealthy thing you've ever heard of, I don't know what is. And I mean, these are the people like, these are the people I ended up finding out about that I was working with, that I was dealing with, you know? Right. So um, how can we find the right mirror? How can we convince them to look at the, shift paradigm well you know the thing is i mean if we can get somebody who is addicted to drugs or someone who's addicted to alcohol um to go into rehabilitation and become fully reprogrammed and claim their health again i don't see why we can't do really intensive work with machiavellians and narcissists I mean, psychopaths, it's a really tricky one, but um, <laughs> like, could we not rehabilitate them? I don't know. I mean, I haven't read uh, a ton of great, I haven't found the research that's really clear that offers a bunch of like a lot of examples that gives you the longitudinal study. I haven't seen that where narcissists get reprogrammed. And the biggest, I think the biggest issue is um, they don't want to be reprogrammed. They don't believe they have a problem. They are so deep in their world. They, in fact, in their mind, they are actually the victim. So when you start to deal with that upside down world where the narcissist believes that they're being attacked, that they're the victim, the more they hurt other people, the more they feel that anyone who questions them is actually hurting them. I mean, you just are in this, it's a kaleidoscope. It's a house of mirrors. It's like, you can't reach them. They're, it's like, they're so far gone in believing their own um, stories that they tell themselves that it's it's really hard. I, I really hope we uh, will find a way to to solve the problem you know, to the root because a narcissist will create more, right? So it's, it's a kind of like hydra. You can, you got the head and then more will, will come out. So it's, it's, uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. 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 And then I'm, I, I hope we'll find a way to really, uh, stop this, this kind of chain that has negative impact on on everyone that is around them and, and furthermore you know even more as i said you know they create other other little monsters i don't want to i don't want to use strong words but that's probably the, the, the most uh, suitable for this uh, for this description 
Well, you know, the thing is, I mean, what we find with narcissists, which is really interesting to me, is if it was just the narcissist, then we wouldn't have such a problem. They would become identified as medically very unhealthy. Their behavior is contagious. They do incredible damage. And so they would become, you know, put into a facility, isolated, cared for, maybe all kinds of attempts to rehabilitate them would happen. But that doesn't happen. Narcissists are so intelligent and charismatic and have cult followings and are so good at gaining power because they don't care what they have to do to get it. They have no regrets. They'll do anything to get power. They end up with followings. And oftentimes they're in institutions. You've seen this in the military. They're in institutions where the whole institution, it's called institutional complicity, they will enable them, protect them. They will victim blame the ones that they have harmed. So if you, let's go back to when you were just had no purpose, no energy, no anything. You just couldn't wait to get away from work. You were obviously massively demoralized. If you had gone and said to your superiors, the leadership model is so destructive that I have lost my sense of self. I don't even want to work. And you know what? A lot of the guys I talk to, they don't want to go to work either. We're miserable. There's something wrong. We need a change. We need some help. They would be like, you know what, Stefano? Thanks. Pack your bags. Get lost. You're weak. You're so weak that we don't want you. You're not the real, you're not Navy material. Get out. And you would have been thrown out. You would have lost your job. You would have lost chances at promotion. You would have lost your livelihood supporting your family. That's why we don't speak up. We all know that. That's how our society is structured right now. We are enablers. We have institutional complicity. We victim blame. We are the supporters and the enhancers of the narcissists in our world, or we wouldn't have put them into positions of extreme political power. So probably what we need is really to change culture, you know, and and uh, create the environment where a narcissist or a narcissist, yeah, or a psychopath or a Machiavellian, whatever, they are isolated because everything is everything else is different. And that's probably the moment which they understand they will be able to see themselves through the right mirror or the mirror and see what they are and see what the damage they're creating. It takes, it takes a lot, a long time. Uh, changing culture is probably uh, the toughest job. Uh, it, it takes a long time, a lot of people and you need to be persistent, consistent, you know, a lot of things that has to happen. And we know right now that uh, you mentioned, you know, that, that the, probably the, the, the geopolitical scenario is not favorable in this moment. I don't want to point at anyone specifically, but it's clear that it's not the right moment. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to be hopeful. So I'm in North America, um, like you are, and... I don't, how many, how many years have you been in America? Oh, no, just, just all right. <laughs> how many years? Um, okay, you've just arrived. But uh, so I grew up in Canada and during my lifetime, I'm, I'm 57. So during my lifetime, I've seen huge cultural changes where one thing that was seen to be normal, like what we've been talking about is, is really destructive, really dangerous, but it was seen to be normal. I've seen that change. So for example, and I use this in the book, as you know, 
when I was growing up, everybody smoked. Everybody, your parents smoked, your teacher smoked, you had a place at the school where you could go out and smoke, your doctor smoked while he wrote you a prescription. Everybody smoked, it was just like super normal. And then all of a sudden, it was discovered that it was costing the system a huge amount of money in cancer. They were like, oh my goodness, we can't afford Medicare for Canadians and Americans because everybody's getting cancer because smoking is actually connected to cancer. It doesn't make you strong, doesn't make you sophisticated, and it doesn't make you tough, even though that was advertised to us as children and, our, and the adults in our world. Okay, so that's a cultural change. It's a huge change. Another example is when I was growing up, nobody wore a seatbelt. You didn't put your kid's seatbelt on and you didn't wear your own and you'd never heard of a car seat for child safety. Never seen one, never heard of it, didn't <laughs> need it. Okay, that's another huge cultural change. And then here's one third example, if you can bear with me. The third one is when I was growing up, if you didn't play a sport, you just didn't do any exercise. It was like you just sat on the couch. It wasn't exercise was seen as something odd or you just did if you played sports. And otherwise, the rest of us just didn't do anything until all of a sudden the aerobics movement, the, the physical fitness movement in the 1980s took off. And it was like you could go to some old church. They put on, you know, the boom box, the, they put on the music, everybody dressed in silly things and you exercised, you danced, you you got your heart rate going, you're breathing hard, you're working your muscles for an hour a day. And that became normal. So sitting on the couch used to be normal and then aerobics became normal and the physical fitness change in the populace and the health improvements were enormous. So I think we're on the cusp, we're on the very tipping edge of a brain fitness revolution. And I believe that we can get people really excited about exercising their brains. There's, as you know, there's a brain training program that's talked all about in the middle of the book. Everyone can do it. It costs nothing, it costs seven bucks a month, it costs a cup of coffee a month. We can all do it. It's designed by neuroscientists and we can get better and we can have stronger brains and we can change our culture. It's doable. Well, yes, it is doable. And uh, all the revolution that you mentioned, you know, at the end was money driving the, 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 the change because everything was, the effect of not going with the cars was dangerous and costly as well as smoking, as well as not exercising. So probably we can make people understand that mental health is necessary and would save you a lot of money. It would save a lot of money to, to governments as well. Probably that's a, that's a way we can approach it. Very um, practical, materialistic probably, but it's uh, uh, probably an effective way. And we know that in countries like uh, in North America, it's, it's uh, it's a good reason <laughs> that people will listen to you. Well, Jennifer, thank you very much for your time. We have uh, we are at the last question. That is, you know, uh, given what everything we have said so far, what is the suggestion that you will give to a young leader? I would tell young leaders to stop reading all the news reports and the royal commissions and the studies on mental illness and how mental illness is destroying our youth populations in particular. And I would spend my time as a young leader reading the incredibly empowering and exciting and inspiring neuroscience that tells me how to have a healthy brain as a young leader and helps me lead 
all my people to also have healthy brains. We don't have to keep talking about mental illness. We can start talking about all the solutions, all the research we have to choose brain health and to make it a part of our lives. And our leaders are going to be the ones that lead this whole movement. Well, that's that's a great um, suggestion. Uh, really original. I'm among the many they ever heard in, in, in these episodes. I I want to ask you something though. Would you would you share a list of readings that I will put in the comments or in the description of the episode so people will pick and choose, you know, like among those books or articles they can about uh, about this? Oh my gosh, there's so many studies, so many books. Um, I I think a wonderful one to start with is my mentor and the neuroscientist who read my book and then um, endorsed it, he said it is the most um, complete scientifically thorough treatment of the subject on planet Earth. And that's Dr. Michael Merzenich. And he's written a great book, very accessible, even though he, he's an absolute genius and one of the world's most highly awarded neuroscientists alive today. He has written a book called Soft Wired and I highly recommend it. It's very readable and it's a book that teaches you about neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is your brain's ability to change based on what you practice and the environment you're in. So if you are in a toxic environment, it's important for your brain's health and well-being to get out. And if you are not practicing things that make you feel good, make you happy and make you high performing, you have to change your practices. So yeah, I would highly recommend Michael Merzenich's book. Well, thank you. I will. I, I wrote down the name, the title, so <laughs> I will be reading them. Thank you again for for your time, for everything you said. I've taken a lot from this episode and this this journey into the the brain of a narcissistic leader has been enlightening, and, and, and it, it makes it makes the the evil more approachable in a way, more understandable. You know, you understand the thing, you approach it better less care by by it. so thank you for um your time and your wisdom and the knowledge that you have on this and thank you for writing an important book like the bully brain thank you so much for having me i loved our conversation and i really appreciate how much attention you're giving to leadership because it's so important so thank you stefan <laughs>